The song that we sang gave us a bit of a primer as to what's going on in the book of Luke. Last time I was here, I preached the first half of chapter 8. Just a reminder of what happens in chapter 8, right? Jesus gives a parable of the sowing of the seeds and talks about how people receive the seed over their lifetime. And then he crosses the Sea of Galilee and calms the storm. And then he calms the storm of demons and the garrison man. And then at the end of chapter 8, he heals Jairus' daughter and the bleeding woman. So we find ourselves here in chapter 9, verses 1, starting in verse 1. And before we read from God's holy and inerrant word, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can open your word together. We thank you that we can read it and understand it. And we thank you that you have done an amazing work in giving us these words. I pray that you would allow our hearts to hear it and understand it. I pray that your spirit would rest upon me, a sinner who seeks to proclaim your gospel to your people. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever, you, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him, that is Jesus, all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and he cured those who needed healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. Taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of the Lord. One of the joys of my life is hiking. I enjoy going and exploring new places, especially in the forests of northern Wisconsin. It's the pine forest. It's very cool up there in the north. You don't always get hot when you're hiking. And because of the logging industry in the 1800s, there's plenty of cool things to find buried underground, like train tracks and tunnels and things like that. 
When I go hiking, I usually pack much more than I actually need. Right? A, a typical pack for a hike, I would pack some snacks. I'd pack a few water bottles, a couple of handkerchiefs. You know, the things that you might need. A flashlight, a compass, utility knife, a hatchet, some zip ties, whistle, duct tape, first aid kit, a road flare, bear spray, you need that, uh, a rain jacket just in case it rains, and not only that, but a military ready-to-eat meal in the case of an emergency. Now, why would I carry all this stuff on my back? I like to be prepared. What if it, we get lost and it's dark and we need to see? What if we're out there so long and somebody gets hurt and they need first aid? What if this, what if that? I like to be prepared. Our text today begins with Jesus sending out the 12 disciples into the world. And Jesus doesn't tell them to take all the things that one might take on a journey. No, Jesus tells them to take nothing. This backpackless journey for the disciples is going to kick off something most people in the world could not understand was coming. You see, the theme of our text is this. When the gospel goes forth, the world is changed. And we'll see this theme in three movements in our text. The twelve proclaims, the tetrarch perplexes, and the teacher provides. If you're the kind of person who likes to take notes, inside your bulletin there should be a little section there with those points and theme for you to take notes. The twelve proclaims, the tetrarch perplexes, and the teacher provides. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now these two verses are pretty amazing, right? Jesus, the one through whom the world is created, gives these twelve men two amazing authorities in order to do two amazing things. You see, in our previous chapter, we see that Jesus allows power to go out from him to heal the bleeding woman. And in our text today, we see that Jesus gives his power to the disciples. Now this is something we shouldn't gloss over. This isn't something where Jesus unlocked a secret power they had in them already, no. Jesus takes his power and his authority and he puts it on the disciples. See, chapter 9 in Luke's gospel is a pivotal moment. Things are about to change. We see that Jesus before this has been working in the disciples. He's been preparing the disciples for this journey. One commentator says that this is the moment that the disciples are turned into apostles. Now we often think these two words are equal, but they're actually not. You see, the Greek word for disciple means a learner or a student, right? Someone who learns after another. That's what the disciples were, right? They learned after Jesus. But at this moment, we see Jesus changing their job title. In verse 2, Luke tells us that Jesus sent the disciples out to proclaim the kingdom of God. These men are being sent. Now, some of you probably already know the Greek word here, but just in case you don't, the Greek word here is apostello. Sounds a lot like what word? Apostle, right? Apostle means one who is sent, one who is commissioned. 
Now, there are varying degrees for this word, right? The same word that Jesus is using to send these disciples out is the same word that could be used for a mother sending their child to go to the neighbor for a cup of sugar. Now, I do remember a time in my life where my mother asked me to go to the neighbor for a cup of sugar or a stick of butter. I'm not sure we do this anymore, mainly because in 2023, a bar of butter is worth more than a bar of gold. But it's true. There are varying degrees of being commissioned. Right? When I went to the neighbor for that sugar, I was acting under my mother's authority. I wasn't going to repay that sugar. My mother would. Right? It's the same kind of a authority that's sent for ambassadors to go to different countries. Right? They're not as powerful as the president, say, of a country, but they speak with some authority that is given to them. The degree of authority talked about in our text today is that these apostles are being sent, they're being commissioned by the Holy Son of God. They're not given authority like a child asking for a cup of sugar. They're not given authority like an ambassador who speaks on behalf of their country. They are given authority over all demons and to cure diseases. This is an authority like no other. They are given a power that only God has. And this is not some deep power they have inside themselves. This is power bestowed upon them. And why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus give this power and this authority to these random men, these 12 men who have been following him and learning after him? He does this because they are being sent. They are being apostled in order to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. We see here in these two verses the early seeds of the Great Commission. Jesus is sending them out in order to proclaim the kingdom of God. But rather than send them on a journey with provisions, Jesus gives them some unique instructions. Verses 3 and 4, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. This is pretty odd. If you're preparing to go on a journey, whether it's a long hike or whether you're just going to pick up something from the groceries, my guess is you bring things with you. Jesus is telling them, don't bring anything. Don't even bring a walking stick. Don't take a staff. Don't take a bag. Don't take money. Don't even bring a change of clothes. How many of you travel on a journey without a change of clothes? Right, no one. I should not see any hands up, right? We don't want to wear the same clothes for 40 days. Jesus expects them to be on the move, and he expects them to rely on the hospitality of the people of the towns. You see, the law of Moses required hospitality. If somebody came to your house or someone came to your gates of your land, you had to provide for them. You had to give them food. You had to give them lodging. Also in this verse, Jesus is telling them not to traverse the town, right? One commentator suggests that Jesus did not want them to sample the hospitality of the town. Don't look for better lodging. Don't look for a better meal. Wherever you are welcomed, stay there for the entirety of your time. As we see in Jesus' statement, this next part, The mission field is not always glamorous. It's not always going to be smooth sailing, verses 5 and 6. 
And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Indeed, the mission field that believers are called to go into is not always going to be glamorous. It's not always going to be great. Jesus is making a very curious statement here. What does he mean by the shaking the dust off your sandal? Well, if we look at our Bible history, right, the the disciples would know their Old Testament. If we look at the Bible history, we see that when, say, Moses was at the burning bush, what did God tell him to do? He told him, take off your sandals, for the ground you're standing on is holy. As well, we can see in the account of Joshua before the battle of Jericho, right? Joshua goes and meets the pre-incarnate Christ, right? The commander of the Lord's armies, and he's told to take off his sandals. For the place where he is standing is holy ground. So what's going on here? What is Jesus getting at? Where the Lord manifests himself, the ground becomes holy, When God dwells with Israel, Israel is meant to be holy, set apart. The land of Israel, the land itself, was considered holy. We still call it that today, right? We call it the Holy Land. You see, when a Jewish person would go on a journey outside of Israel, before they could come back into Israel, before they could pass the boundary line, the border, they had to shake the dust off their sandals. They could not bring the pagan dust from outside of Israel, into Israel. You see, Israel was a clean land. The pagan land was unclean. But the funny thing here in our text is that Jesus is not sending them to Gentile towns. He's sending them to Jewish towns. I told you at the beginning, chapter 9 is a turning point in Luke's gospel. Right? Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. For instead of being holy based on how you were born or where you were born, holiness is now determined on who you put your faith in, who you throw yourself at. Right? Jesus. This concept is what turns the whole world upside down. It is threatening the Jewish way of life because Jews believed that they were the holy people. They were set apart. They were the ones who were important and the rest of the world was not. They didn't understand that God set them apart not to give them a superiority complex, to show that they are superior over everyone else. No, he set them apart to be a lighthouse to the rest of the world to shine God's light, to welcome people in. And they failed at that. Romans 9, 6-8 confirms this for us. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. This is revolutionary to the Jews. The people who thought they were in because of who they were have to realize that their heritage doesn't matter anymore. Where they were born does not save them. Instead, salvation belongs to those who call upon the name of the Lord, repent, 
and believe in Jesus Christ. As well, in this section of our text, there is something that we must ponder carefully. There is something being alluded to here that is evident throughout all of Scripture. God will not be patient forever. From God's perspective, He knows the date. He knows the time that He will send His Son to return. From our perspective, we don't know how many tomorrows we may have. We don't know the date. We don't know the time. Let us not put off repentance until tomorrow, for we do not know how many tomorrows we have. Now, this means that we must live like tomorrow is not planned for us. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't plan to have dinner with friends this week. This also doesn't mean that we should sit at home and do nothing because the Lord is going to come and we don't know when. This means we should live each day to the fullest, loving our family, loving our friends, and showing love to a world that doesn't deserve it. And for the one who is yet to believe, for the one who has not thrown themselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ, hear this day the good news. Hear what must be done in order to receive eternal life. Take this good news that has come to your village and bring it into your home and let it change your life. Welcome it. Receive it. You see, the disciples, they are sent to do the work appointed to them. And Luke's gospel accounts for two times of Jesus sending people out before his crucifixion. But this time, the only report of how well the disciples are doing comes from the mouth of a pagan. Let's look at the second portion of our text today, the Tetrarch perplexes, starting in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Kind of a short three verses to break up our text, but Mark's gospel has a bit more to fill us in on what's going on. You see, in Mark 6, we see the account of Herod detaining John, John the Baptist, because John openly denounced Herod's actions of taking his brother's wife and divorcing his wife unlawfully. Now you probably remember the scene, right, of the great banquet where Herodias has her daughter dance for Herod. And Herod is so overcome with this dance that he offers to reward her up to half his kingdom, which was also unlawful for him to give. And at the prodding of her mother, what does she ask for? She asks for the head of John the Baptist. And Herod obliges. Now, this is very important because some people are saying that John has been raised from the dead. Of course, Herod is perplexed. How does a man come back from the dead after losing his head? Now, we know there are accounts of the Old Testament that people had come back to life, right? There's one where there's a man man being chased by raiders, and he throws himself into the grave of Elisha, and as he touches the bones, he comes back to life. Right? Herod would know all of those stories of the Old Testament, of people coming back to life, but none of those people did so after losing their head. He was perplexed. He was confused. He was scared. 
Why is Herod feeling this way? He feels guilty. He knows what he did was wrong. And if you read Mark's account, you'll see that Herod was actually keeping John the Baptist safe. In detaining him, Herod was keeping him safe. Mark 6, 18-20. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Herod feared John because he knew he was a righteous man. He knew that he was a holy man. He feared John. Herod also knew that John was innocent. Herod also enjoyed listening to John. There are many reasons why Herod should feel guilty. And in his guilt, he feared that John had come back to life to take his retribution. Luke only gives us a few verses on Herod's response. Matthew and Mark give us more. But what is being done here by Luke is showing the depravity that Israel is in. Luke is contrasting Herod's response to the gospel going forth. He does this purposefully. Luke is showing that Israel is not the holy land that they thought they were. You see, the exile to Babylon should have fixed this problem. The Israelites knew that their exile was because of their sin. They had offended a holy God. The prophets were clear about that. And coming back from Babylon, they should have learned their lesson. They should have seen their fault. But they didn't. They continued in their superiority complex. They continued in their sin. They continued to profane what was supposed to be holy. Indeed, they continued to profane what was supposed to be holy. Not the land. They continued to profane what was supposed to be holy. Not the temple. They continued to profane what was supposed to be holy. Their hearts. They continue to profane their hearts. John Calvin our brother in the faith, said this in his institutes, alluding to the prophet Jeremiah. Yet we need not labor to prove that a wicked king is the Lord's wrath upon the earth, for I believe no man will contradict me. God shows his judgment on a nation by giving them a wicked ruler. We see this throughout scripture, right? Herod the Tetrarch was a wicked ruler. He committed adultery, he committed incest, and that's just among the other things that he did. But the reality here is that while we cannot see ourselves in this story, we do understand guilt. We see that Israel was plagued by bad rulers and was given some good rulers. But the issue is not the rulers. The issue is sin. We understand the guilt and weight of sin. We understand that when we do something wrong, we feel the weight of our wrongness on our shoulders. You should, you should see this as a gift. What do I mean, a gift? You see, God chastens those whom he loves. He disciplines those whom he loves. The gift is being able to know right from wrong. And when God gives us this sense of wrong and sense of error, we should repent. When we know we did something wrong, we should repent. 
You see, the flip side of this is when someone knows that they did something wrong and they instead harden their heart instead. Herod felt this guilt for what he had done, but rather than turn to the Lord and ask for forgiveness, he turns his heart to be more like a stone. You see, in the case of Herod, he hardened his heart. But we see this time and time again. We saw this with Pharaoh. We saw this with bad rulers over Israel. The era of the kings is mixed with good and bad rulers. And the standard here of good and bad is not whether they were nice to their subjects. It's not whether they did many great building projects to expand their kingdom. The standard was whether or not the one who everyone kneels in front of is able to kneel before the Lord. See, Herod is perplexed. Is it Elijah? Is it some prophet of old? Is it John the Baptist reborn? No, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that Herod's ears have heard this means the disciples are doing their job. They are doing the work. They are proclaiming the kingdom. Now, we don't know how many villages or towns they went to. We don't know how many welcomed them. We don't know how many rejected them. But we do know that they did the work that was set before them. See, verses 7 through 9 show a good report as any would. And if that's the end of it, we would know that they indeed labored for the kingdom. But we're going to see just how fruitful their labor actually was. We'll look at our last section of the text the teacher provides. Verses 10 and 11. On their return, the apostles told him all that he had done, all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, did you catch that in verse 10? They're no longer called the twelve. They are not called disciples. They are called apostles. The ones who were sent return, and they tell Jesus what they had done. Now, they probably saw fruit of their labor, right? As they're going from town to town, they probably saw some fruit. But they're really about to see just how the gospel works. You see, Jesus had sent messengers to the towns and villages. And these people have responded. How did they respond? They respond by showing up. Verse 12. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Well, okay, they're the twelve again. Now we can choose to not read into this and just see that it just is what is said by Luke, that they're the twelve and he used apostle and now he doesn't use it. Or we can read into this detail very closely. And we can see that when they went out in faith, they were commissioned, they were sent, they were apostled. But now they are back. And we're going to see that they still need some time under the master to become the apostles we know them to be in the future. This is evident because the twelve try to give advice to Jesus. It's always funny when people try to tell Jesus what to do. The day was waning, the people are getting restless, and the disciples figure it's time for these people to go. They need to find food, they need to find lodging, tell them to be gone. Now our text doesn't actually say anything about lodging, but it does say provisions. So let's get to that in verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fishes, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. 
Now this would be like me showing up to preach this morning and you telling me that I need to provide the food for this Palm Sunday banquet. Me? I, I didn't bring anything. We get to this point in Luke's Gospel of the feeding of the 5,000. Now this is a miracle that everyone knows. Why does everyone know it? Well, it's the only miracle, apart from the resurrection, that is in every Gospel. Right? There are no other miracles that are referenced in each of the four Gospels other than the feeding of the 5,000 and the resurrection. Now, our modern technology is really helpful for me because I don't have to open four Bibles to read all the accounts. I have one Bible that does all the accounts next to each other. It's very helpful. And as I was studying these accounts, you could see that they're all similar. John's is a little different from the other three, but that's par for the course. All of them highlight where they are, and the need for food. Mark is normally the shorter gospel account, but he is just as long as John. Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke are very close in length. But John's gospel is the only gospel that points to where this food comes from. It's the only gospel that says the bread and the fish were coming from a young boy. Now the Greek of John's text leads us to believe that the boy's food was indeed five barley loaves of bread. But the fish were not, the word there is not for fish that were caught, like fresh fish. The word there is actually, in John's gospel, a fish relish that would be spread on the bread. Right? Not a meager lunch, but definitely not enough food for all these people. Now, I could make a funny comment here about the disciples stealing some kid's lunch. But the truth is, we know nothing about this boy. We know nothing about why he was there, why he had this food, whether he was following Jesus or whether he wasn't. And perhaps that's why the other three Gospels leave this out. Because it's not about the boy. It's about Jesus and what he's going to do for the people. Continuing in verse 14, For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. Now Luke's Gospel is clear that there were about 5,000 men. But what's not clear was how many others there were. Suppose each man had a wife, right? Suppose each couple had a couple of children. Before you know it, this crowd of 5,000 is actually upwards of ten to 15,000. Now as to the numbering that Jesus says, right? Mark's gospel does the same thing, but commentators suggest that we shouldn't view anything about this except that it's a, a way to divide the people and feed them efficiently. And Jesus, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. And while the language in the Lord's Supper account is different than here, this meal is meant to prefigure the Lord's Supper. Luke does this purposefully. He actually leaves out any mention of the fish after the blessing. Now this doesn't mean that the fish relish was neglected and the people just ate dry bread, but that Luke is intentionally drawing his reader to contemplate the communion meal. We know why he does this. You see, every moment of the Bible points forward to Jesus Christ. All the themes of banquets and holy meals, they point us to the marriage supper of the Lamb that will one day happen. Luke wants us to see this. Now in this moment, we see something awesome. And I know that we say that a lot. Yes, I say that a lot. Jesus is constantly doing amazing things. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be enthusiastic when we come across something. 
Friends, do you see that Jesus is Lord? Do you see that He is Lord over the demons? That He is Lord over the storms? That He is Lord over the hearts of the people? Even their hunger and their desire. And yet, it's possible that many of these people will be there the day that Jesus is lifted up and the people shout, crucify. Notice there's no detail of the crowd's reaction. There's no detail about how Jesus actually multiplied the bread and the fish. There's no detail about the reaction of the disciples. Luke records the facts and shows the reader the only thing they need to see. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is indeed the Christ. Herod, along with the world, asks, Who is this about whom I hear such things? And in this moment, it's as if Jesus is saying to the world, I am. See, Jesus gathered this crowd for a purpose. Let's be clear, Jesus sent the disciples out to the villages and the towns to gather this crowd here to see this miracle that the Lord God would be on full display. I told you it's a turning point in Luke's Gospel. Jesus is putting himself on display for all to see, for all to hear. You see, there were crowds, sure, before this, but not upwards of ten to 15,000. This is a defining moment. You see, people, questions are going to come. People are going to come to Jesus. They want to see amazing things. The crowds are going to grow. At one point, they're going to throw their cloaks on the ground and shout Hosanna as Christ enters Jerusalem. Palm Sunday will come. The people will rejoice and shout. They will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus will reach the pinnacle of fame in the eyes of the people. And this point in Luke 9 sets this in motion. The crowds will swell. The mob will grow. And in an instant, their demeanor will change from blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him. Crucify him now. Friends, the teacher is going to provide a meal for 5,000. But more importantly, he's going to provide redemption to satisfy many more who don't deserve it. Give you a few bonus verses in Luke's Gospel, 9, 18 through 20. This is happening a little bit later. And he, that is Jesus, asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. We see a sandwich in our text today, not just because there's bread and fish, but because there's a literary tool being used here. Right? Our main text begins with the disciples being sent out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And it ends with the disciples being sent out to pick up leftovers. The words of Herod in 7 through 9 is repeated by the disciples in 18 through 20. Except in the previous verses, the people had no idea. And here the disciples are assured, Jesus is the Christ of God. As you walk through Luke's Gospel, you see this turning point here in chapter 9 that will eventually lead to the cross. Now we are currently in the process of leading up to Easter. Easter is next week. 
Now, I'm Presbyterian, and Presbyterians don't usually celebrate Lent like other traditions do, mainly because we, while we see the merits in celebrating the historic church calendar, we see that it is more important to preach the gospel above all else every Sunday. This doesn't mean that we don't use the time of Lent to prepare our hearts to contemplate the work of our Lord. But this does mean that every Sunday we preach the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We do this every Lord's Day. That is why it is imperative that the man who stands behind this pulpit preaches Christ and not himself. If I were to preach myself to you, you would be led astray because I'm a sinner. Now I can be witty, I can be funny, sure, we can have a fun time together opening God's word. But if I preach anything other than Christ and him crucified, I don't belong up here. If Peter, James, or John were to preach themselves to you, you'd be led astray, for they are sinners. Despite seeing Christ face to face, they were indeed sinful. Jesus Christ is no sinner. He did not sin. He does not sin. He will not sin. Here's the point. Jesus is the Christ of God who knew no sin and yet took the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders in order that we would have eternal life. That is why he's called the Christ, the Messiah, because he does what no one else could. Brothers and sisters, today the good news has come to you that you might hear and believe. And for those who already believe, the good news has come to you this day that you would hear it and be strengthened for the work ahead. What is this work? You see, Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. That's what he does. And in a, in a few short chapters of Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to be lifted high for all to see in embarrassment. But as we look forward to Easter, right, as we celebrate this time of the historic church calendar, we see that the man who was lifted high is lifted high indeed by God, for he's raised to life again that Easter morning. We celebrate Easter each year because it is a day that God has given us to worship him. But traditionally, what happens on Easter is something that doesn't happen the rest of the year. Easter is the one day, the second day of the year, along with Christmas, where most unbelievers will feel a sense to go to church. Chances are there will be people in attendance next week who are not from your church, probably family visiting or people who are going to church on Easter. God has given us this opportunity. He has given us eternal life. And he has apostled us to go forth. He has commissioned us to go forth to share the good news in the villages, in the towns, that all would come to believe. It's a hard calling, brothers and sisters. It's a hard calling to go to the uncomfortable places of this world. And by that I mean our next door neighbor. We have this amazing gift. We've been given salvation why would we not share it? The Son of God has come to us through Luke's Gospel, asking us, who do you say that I am? And I hope that our collective response would be, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that you sent your son, that you subjected him to the cross, and that he willingly went along. For even though he knew no sin, even though he was blameless, perfect, righteous, he became sin for us. That we would be ransomed back to you. That the price of our guilt would be paid. Father, forgive us for our waywardness and our desire to flee from you. You have sent your servants into our towns, into our homes to preach the gospel to us. And we have been saved because of it. Father, now send us. Send us to go out into this world. Commission us with your good news. As we await your coming kingdom, whether it's tomorrow, whether it's years from now, Father, strengthen us to teach this world who you are. And as this world becomes more hostile towards your gospel, let us show love and compassion all the same. Lord, we pray for the hurt and the suffering. We ask as this day of Easter comes that the churches would be filled, that people would hear the gospel, and that people would repent. May your church grow, Father. We thank you. We love you. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would please stand. We will now sing...